for they will love you as you are, for they will carry you as you are, and all these worries This week on the Queer Calling Podcast, I chat to my friend, Rabbi Hilly Haber. Hilly is an openly queer rabbi in the Reformed Jewish tradition and serves as the Director of Social Justice, Organizing, and Education at Central Synagogue in New York City. Rabbi Haber has also taught men and women on Rikers Island through Manhattan College, and she and her wife, Rabbi Rachel, are rabbinical chaplains at the Northern State Prison in Newark, New Jersey. In this episode, we talk about watching MTV in the basement, hunting for hints of queerness. We talk about how Rabbi Haber found solace in the synagogue when their gender identity and sexuality didn't make sense in middle school and high school. And we talk about the joys of coming out. This interview is full of grace, life, and rigorous hope. I hope you enjoy it. Do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, I'm Hilly. I'm a, uh, a rabbi at Central Synagogue uh, in New York City, and I'm also a doctoral student in social ethics at Union. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. That is, you know, sort of a trial run for now, but we'll see. Um, my name's Keisha. Um, I'm an alum of Union and, a lot, and an alum of Mount Holyoke, which we also know each other through. <laughs> um, before we get started, can you let me know and our listeners know your preferred pronouns? Yeah, she, her. Great. Thank you. Um, she, her for me as well. Okay, so let's just dive into it. How do you identify? And you can take that question any way you like. I identify as queer. I think that's, I think that's it, <laughs> which I think encompasses an infinite mm-hmm. spectrum of identities. Has that, so um, I was asked this question recently and I launched into a story about how I got to identifying as queer. Um, did, Did you naming yourself queer sort of have an arc? Like, did you identify as other things and sort of that develop over time? I think so, yeah. I think I, I, when I was younger, I think, didn't feel comfortable identifying in any way necessarily. And I think I always felt like I was hiding or I had a lot of shame around identifying as a woman or identifying as, you know, anything. And that that felt like a box, I guess. Um, And queer, I just found maybe in college and just, uh, I love it because it's expansive. There's kind of limitless potential for, for who you are. And I think queer also recognizes the ways that we evolve and change and transform from day to day. So I just, I love how that one word could kind of capture a whole range of identities and feelings and ways of walking in the world. Amazing. Me, me too. Um, and I, I just want to say like the umbrella term also makes it freer for my own gender, like development. Like I, you know, I, over the decades, it's been different. And then it's also been different about you know, the people that I'm attracted to. And I think it just like allows you to just be. Um, how do you identify spiritually? I am, uh, it's, yeah, another good question. Um, I'm Jewish and I am, uh, I work within the reform movement and identify as a reformed Jew. Okay. 
you know, in divinity school and rabbinical school and seminary spaces, we talk about the call. Um, and I have come to realize that this can feel very different for people. And sometimes it can feel identical for many, many people. Um, so if you would like, could you share your call story? Yeah, it's so interesting because it's not really language we use um, mm -hmm. in rabbinical school, like a call. As a like a young teen, I was really, I got very interested in, in Judaism. And I think it actually had a lot to do with my like burgeoning gender identity and, and sexuality. Mm -hmm. I think that in a lot of spaces, especially at school, I felt really left out um, and didn't really have, you know, when, when crushes came up and people started talking about who they liked and you know, and it became important how you dressed. I think I just felt so alienated from those oh. conversations. And I found like real safe haven in synagogue um, and in youth group because it wasn't about, you know, who you were into or, or what clothes you were wearing, but it was about engaging with text and, you know, thinking about Jewish identity and what that meant and having intergenerational conversations and praying together and building community. But I think I really found a haven in, in religious community that way. Um, and really had it meeting. Yeah. <laughs> it was a way to kind of get past a conversation, anything that had to do with gender or sexuality. Um, and just to talk about to talk about text and, uh, and Jewish identity. So your coming out to yourself led you to synagogue. I think synagogue gave me the space to think differently about myself. Um, yeah, and find a place that that maybe didn't have anything to do with gender or sexuality. And I think it kind of gave me a way of walking around those conversations through high school until I was ready to really kind of come out in college. Did you ever feel any kind of like fear that it might not be accepted in synagogue or not really? Not really. I think I had more fear around, you know, just not, not because I wouldn't be accepted religiously, but just generally. I think I had a lot of fear and shame um, around feeling different or feeling like I didn't belong. Um, but I didn't, it wasn't from, it wasn't cause I, you know, from a religious perspective, but I think I carried that with me wherever I went and it just kind of kept me, um, a little distant from most people, um, you know, until college where I don't know what happened, you know, Mount Holyoke. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <I do. laughs> um, that's so, okay. So I think, um, you know, Obviously now with TikTok and all this stuff, we you know, Gen Z is like growing up and they're fully fledged adults now, um, which is wild. But I've come to realize that something, you know, people closer to our age remember about being a baby gay. And I'm sure, you know, many people in many communities still feel this, but it's the secret dread you know, this like deep, like, I remember holding my breath a lot um, when I felt queerness and I didn't know what it was, but I yeah. knew for sure that it was super different to what the other girls in my class were talking about. And I remember just like holding my breath really tight and being like, okay, how do we, how do we not do this? <laughs> <laughs> how do we stop this um, and you know I mean for me I think I knew that there were you know there was like deep homophobia around me but um 
I also think it was just like not celebrated. Like I didn't have any, um, I didn't have any vision for the fact that it could be joyful to be out. Mm. Did did you, did you have that? Did you like, you know, did, was that part of your, like, did you have any queerness in the ether of where you grew up or not really? Not really. I love how you put that. I don't think I was, I wasn't getting messages that it was bad or wrong, I think overtly, but I do, there was not queerness celebrated in the ether. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't, I don't think I knew it could be a source of joy. Yeah. Um, And I also didn't see people having queer relationships or, you know, raising children together, raising a family. And I think I never thought that I could have that um, growing up. I just didn't think it would be for me. Um, Yeah. And I remember like, um, it's, it's just kind of amazing how like, you know, and, and we're not like so far removed mm-hmm. from like Gen Z in our age, but I think there's been such a shift. Um, and I love working with teens today. I have, I actually have teenage siblings. Um, and I love talking to them and I love talking to the teens at our, at our synagogue about, you know, just like their gender expression and their sexuality. There's such a recognition of a of spectrum and they seem to have so much joy around who they are and embracing that. Um, and so much compassion for one another as they navigate that. It's just kind of amazing. I remember hiding in the basement. I used to go down and remember MTV used to have like, like gay couples on next or something, or like, like <laughs> these terrible TV shows, but that was the only, there was a smear yeah. kissing Jessica Stein. If you saw, I, like these were the only things that were like, you know, I used to try to watch them and I'd run to the basement. So no one would see that I was watching these TV shows. I think those were like the only models of of queer adulthood or queer like young adulthood that I had. I think my messaging that I got when I was younger was like queerness somehow equated to hiding. Mm. And like, and it was the same of like, you know, um, do you remember that TV show, The O.C.? Yeah, of course. And, and there's that one season where there are like lesbian characters. And I remember being glued. <laughs> you know, I remember being like, oh my God. Um, and then, you know, and just like having queer references in movies without any like overtness to it, I think somehow signified to me that like the choice to come out and like, pursue the lifestyle of being gay would somehow mean that I'd have to hide or like be away you know um and I think you know part of the shifts that have happened in our like adult lifetime is like oh we don't have to hide anymore and we can like stop being holding our breath essentially yeah I, we can breathe. I, 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 I always wondered, like, how am I going to find anyone who feels this way, too? Like, where, am I gonna find, where are they? They're on TV, but how do I meet them? Yes. I was like, <laughs> I don't, either I'm going to be alone or this is just going to be it. So, <laughs> um, so when did you, you said college, which is similar to me. So was that the first time that you felt like you could like let all those parts be or how would you describe that? Yeah, I think like freshman, my first, my first year um, of college, even, even like, you know, in, in Mount Holyoke, it's such like, I feel like just such a queer space that kind of immediately celebrates 
queer identity. Um, and I felt, I think I felt really uncomfortable at first. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, the first few days. <laughs> and then, and then like, I remember my, like, I think it was like the third night where one of my roommates just like, it was like two in the morning and the three of us were talking. Um, and she was like, I think I might like women. And then I just immediately, I just like, I think I screamed and the lights were off for all day. And I think it was like, I did too. <laughs> and it was just like a super fast, <laughs> uh, the first time I said that out loud. And then from there, it just was an explosion. Oh, I never looked back. <laughs> oh, I love that. Okay, I love that. I do too. <laughs> Um, did you know then, or did you have an idea then that you might want to go to rabbinical school and be a rabbi? Like, did that come up for you at all? Yeah, that, that I wanted to do since I was 12. I think that was kind of the first, the first way I really saw myself in the world was as a rabbi. That's amazing. (laughs) I, I, I want to know more about that. I don't know that many people that know at such a young age that they want to do that. I was getting, I was getting ready for my bat mitzvah um, and I really mm-hmm. loved my rabbi as a child. Um, and so she and I had a really great relationship and I just loved studying with her. Um, you know, as I said, I felt really safe at Hebrew school and at youth group. Uh, and I think my, you know, my best friends were there. Um, so I, you know, and I, and I loved, I loved everything about it. I love the music. I love praying. I love the community. Uh, so I think I just knew that that was something I, I wanted to do. When you, um, so like when you started, you know, when you experienced the explosion of like, <laughs> of like coming into yourself as a queer person and like all of the, um, I, I describe it as, you know, I, I kissed a girl for the first time and in my head, I, I remember being like, oh, I've been like, this is why I wasn't into kissing before because this feels different. <laughs> and I just remember feeling like there was a sound in my head that was like, felt like joy, but I wasn't sure what it was like I just didn't have any I was so young I didn't have all the words that I have now to like describe what I'm feeling um in your process of going through that experience and like feeling all of that joy you know how did that um connect or inform your faith or how you like walked in your faith oh what a good question um, I think it's oh, such a good question. I think that um, it probably informed my faith. I think I probably, you know, I felt like I could fully tap into my full, you know, my sexuality and my gender identity and start exploring that. I think it began to inform how I thought about Judaism and what, um, you know, kind of co- how could I queer theology? How could I start thinking yeah. about texts differently that reflected you know, who I was becoming and how I was thinking about myself and my identity. Um, you know, and there's so many ways to read religious texts that are not about, you know, binary oppositions and, and ways to think about gender differently. Um, and ways to think about God when you have tapped into, you know, like a full gender expression for yourself or found a place that you're comfortable physically. 
Um, so I think, it, yeah, I think, you know, kind of transformed how I was thinking about faith. But that, I think that was probably much later. I think at first I was just so excited <laughs> to be out of the world. <laughs> that deep reflection probably happened years later. <laughs> after you know, the joy comes first. Yeah. The, 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 yeah, the baby gay joy. <laughs> that joy where I totally forgot that I was also a student and a <laughs> where I was just a social being <laughs> for um, running around know, Mount Holyoke. <laughs> I was, uh, I don't know whether we'll keep this part in the podcast, but who knows? Um, I was hanging out with friends last night who also went to Mount Holyoke and I was telling them that I uh, was going to talk to you today. And I remember this conversation that we had over lunch once about our fashion sense in college. (laughs) (laughs) And I was saying, you know, I remember all of us wearing these like baggy boxers under skinny jeans and thinking we were so hot. And looking back, it's like, it, it feels like a hate crime, honestly, to <laughs> <Like>, <laughs> ourselves. But what was interesting was that like, you know, it worked. Like it was just such a joyful queer space that people were like into each other finding themselves or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> such a supportive environment. You know, I think I had like all these friends in school who were um, like older from, you know, I knew them from the track team or from acapella. <laughs> And they started giving me their old clothes, you know, all that bad fashion that we all had, I got from them and I just loved it. I just couldn't like, I had these baggy jeans in the boxers, the like such like (laughs) large clothing. And I just remember feeling so at home and so Mm -hmm. happy. And I came home, I remember I came home like one semester, you know, when you like go home from Mount Holyoke? Yeah. Oh yeah. what is happening to you and I was like no mom this is cool and then parents are like I don't I don't know about that um you know thank god for growth honestly um I think I think we look great <laughs> you know we tried um Another conversation that I remembered having with you was actually when I was talking, I think I was talking to you about, I hadn't come up with a podcast idea yet, but I was, I was talking to you about how there are so many people that don't know that there are queer rabbis and pastors and like, how do we as people that have access to these institutions like union you know, how do we, how do we begin to explain to them that they don't have to give up God, you can be queer and love God all in one lifetime. And, you know, nothing needs to be sacrificed in that way. And you looked at me and you said, well, God is (laughs) non-binary. I remember like the phone ringing and I had to get the phone and I couldn't ask you about that more in that moment. But if you want, I would love to hear, you know, you say more about that. Yeah, I think, you know, your question about how do we let people know that they can they can bring their, their full selves to, to, to faith and to theology. And I th- it's exactly as you're saying. I think there's like, you know, there's there's multiple, you know, there's some reconciliation we have to do. We have to 
see and, and state how faith communities have hurt people who are queer. And I think talk about that history. But, you know, also, I think we have to realize that embedded in so much theology uh, is a, is a non-binary God. Um, and I think, you know, we've created, you know, from Jewish tradition, you know, there's, there's kind of, it's, there's so much creativity that, that goes into this. Um, you know, but for so long, Jewish law was really about, um, you know, recognizing what it, prescribing what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, how you have rituals around that, what, which rituals apply to whom, which commandments apply to whom, based on gender, you know, what are our different roles. But if you kind of peel back the layers of those of the Jewish of Jewish law and you look biblically, I mean, there's such a varied understanding of gender and what it and you know and this kind of um, total spectrum. We had this rabbi, um, Maggie Winnick, and she writes about Genesis and the creation of of people. Um, and she reads that line: um, "We were created male and female." Mm-hmm. She reads that uh, as a merism. So merism is this biblical technique of um, it's like a, a device where you can say like from north to south and then that literally means the whole country everything in between north to south everything in between so she reads male to female as merism so it's we were created male female and everything in between and recognizing that there's this huge spectrum of gender identity and i think all of that that kind of reading it's all there it's all in the text and it's been kind of so um, you know, Jewish tradition kind of, you know, law has kind of narrowed over time the definition of, of what it means to be male and female. Um, but I think, you know, now we have this, especially, you know, our reform tradition is just kind of, and a lot of, a lot of Jewish communities are creating new rituals using that kind of reading, you know, going back and recognizing that our texts are not um, binary and they're not narrow in how they think about people's identity um, and creating rituals that recognize all kinds of relationships and identities and coming of age ceremonies um, that just, you know, are there, but you have to kind of do some excavating. And I think the same is true of God. I mean, if you look at the ways that God is described in texts and, you know, um, there's so many, and I think, you know, my favorite to talk, story to talk about, I love talking about yeah. Jacob, and, um, but, but God is completely this kind of, you know, I mean, I don't even know where to begin with God. <laughs> Most people don't, but please, please continue. <laughs> I'll talk about people first. Okay. <laughs> we can lead ourselves into God. Um. How how do you so I'm always interested in you know I'm a queer person who has occupied faith based places seminaries and churches and wherever um, so when I disagree with homophobic readings of texts or when I disagree with um, you know dogma that like people will base in religiosity. Um, I disagree with them from my personhood, right? And then I disagree with them from what I learned in grad school and seminary. But I, I didn't choose to be a faith leader, right? So I didn't choose that path. So I guess my, my question is, you know, how do you stand up or push back on whichever or or call in whichever term that you'd like um when you meet people within your tradition um that have homophobic is one way to put it but sort of 
more conservative readings and how do you how do you make the case for excavating a queer god or a non-binary god from the text like how do you make that case and how do you make it accessible to people that did not go to grad school right that didn't go uh you know to seminary and dip school and you know how do, how do you make that case for people I think that when we limit how people can express themselves and talk about who they love, I, you know, I think it becomes, we just start limiting ourselves as well. I mean, any kind of, um, you know, religion that says who you can be and how you can dress and, you know, you end up limiting everyone and, 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 you know, narrowing the possibilities for, for even, I think for theology too, of what God can look like. And I'll, I'll give an example. Like I think Judaism is a queer religion. I think, I think we are a queer people. Um, on Abraham, say that one more time because that was. <laughs> we are a we are a, Judaism is a queer religion and we are queer people. Um, when when Abraham is called by God uh, to go from his homeland with Sarah to go find a land of promise, um, he's he's identified as an Ivri as a Hebrew and Ivri Avar in Hebrew the the root means border crosser. Um, Rabbi Paul Adler was like the first person to translate it that way. Um, a border crosser, and it also means transgression. Um, it can mean that too. Um, and I think, you know, this act of kind of border crossing, this is a queer act, this idea of transgressing a boundary, of exposing a binary, and then moving beyond it and finding new ways of being in the world. That is a, a fundamentally queer thing to do. And we get this name, um, you know, Hebrew, Avar, Ivrim is one way to call the Hebrew people, and another way is Israel. And Israel comes from this other, another moment of this kind of um, of wrestling, of striving, and of, of boundary crossing. It comes from this moment where Jacob is wrestling with with an angel, or God, however you want to describe that. Um, Jacob uh, wrestles at night with this kind of, um, you know, kind of nameless <laughs> entity. Um, and in that struggle, uh, as morning breaks, um, Jacob demands that this that this person, this thing, blesses him. And bless him with a new name. And I think Jacob is this kind of, yeah, this you know, transformational, transitional figure who goes through a, a transition and who takes on this new name, whose body is forever scarred by this night of wrestling, of striving. And the word Israel that is comes out of that moment, is birth in that moment of striving, of struggling, of demanding blessing, of of a name change. And I think as a people, we're named for that. We're named for that moment of striving. If you want to call us Ivrim, though we speak Hebrew, Hebrew, we're named as border crossers, as boundary crossers. And I think Jewish history, you know, we've never lived in one place as a people um, ever at one time. We constantly are moving from country to country. We speak different languages. We look different ways. And there's not one way for a Jewish person to exist in the world. And I think that makes us queer, um, that we're able to inhabit all these spaces constantly and evolve and transform. And if you look at all the places across the country now where Jews live, across the world where Jews live, there are so many different trans tra traditions. There's so many different Jewish practices. You know, being a Jew does not mean one thing. And I think that makes us queer. And I think that's what queer identity is. It's this limitless possibility where you recognize that we as people, as Jews are just constantly transforming and evolving. I love that so much. I also love that you reminded me that name changes are literally a biblical thing. Yeah. And as we you know, go into this hysteria against trans children and you know, the limitations of like, you know, how do you get to change your name? It's like, it's literally in the Torah and the Bible, like 
people have chosen names for themselves across thousands and thousands of years. Yeah, um, there's so much power in renaming, you know, like yeah. giving yourself a name that captures a new identity. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. It's, it's so powerful. What We see that in uh, the book of Ruth. Um, Naomi takes a new name for herself that, that kind of captures where she is, that she's bitter, that she has suffered this tragic loss. I mean, there's so much power in changing a name. Like Jacob, it's a blessing for him to get a new name. It's this moment of stepping into this new identity, this new way of being. And I think, you know, we have we have, we can create rituals that recognize that. And we have naming ceremonies in Jewish tradition, you know, that around the time you're born, but there are, you know, ways of constantly renaming and thinking about yourself differently and marking that change and transition with a new name. Okay, so I, I'm gonna transition a bit. So I listened to a yeah. bunch of your sermons before this um, because I wanted to get a sense of, um, you know, the message, um, messages that you want to give people. So I have two things that I want to ask you about. One is directly related to what you talked about. Um, you talk about this in your, uh, a, a sermon from 2019, uh, which was a prayer vigil for migrants. Um, and you say our history is filled with tension and hope, the push and pull between exile and promise, oppression and opportunity. Um, and then you refer to Jewish people as wanderers and the experience of being outsiders being etched upon the soul of Jewish people. And that that memory or that um, experience is both your inheritance and your inspiration for moral action. Um, Damn, that was well written. <laughs> that was well written and those were your words. <laughs> <laughs> that was your stuff like I I listened to it twice and I was like wow that is amazing um how does so we've you've talked about you know being wanderers and 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 crossing boundaries as like part of the Jewish tradition inherently both historically and like in in the survival and building of your spiritual identity how do you think that, I'd say this is a symbiotic question. So how do you think your queerness has informed that theological perspective? And how do you think that that perspective of being a wanderer then is like grounded in your queerness and like comes from you as like a faith leader as well? And do you think that's true? You can say no. I I know, I do think that's true. I think, um, you know, we're told so many times um, in the Hebrew Bible that that uh, we were strangers in Egypt. Um, and I think that that line is, you know, to remember that experience and to, to really, um, you know, we're, we're, we're commanded to, to tell that story as if we lived it, that we constantly are telling this story to ourselves, that we were slaves in Egypt, that God saved us, and we, and, and we know we are people who know liberation. And I think we're told that because we're we're supposed to kind of cultivate constantly this deep well of empathy that there are people who are still enslaved and there are people who are not free. And as a people who tell ourselves and who embed that into our identity that we are people who knows liberation and we know the experience of slavery, I think for me that translates into this mandate to just continually ask the question, who is not free? And how do we fight for liberation? How do we bring that about for all people? Um, 
And, and I see that as part of your work as a rabbi. I do. Yeah. And I'm, I, I work, um, at, at Central, I'm the director of social justice organizing and education, and I work primarily in criminal justice reform. And um, since I was in rabbinical school, actually, even since I was in divinity school, um, I was mentoring or teaching or serving as a chaplain in jail or prison settings. Um, and I taught on Rikers Island for a few years. Um, we started leading services there um, right before the pandemic. And uh, my wife and I, my wife is also a rabbi, uh, we're rabbinic chaplains at a prison near our house in New Jersey. Um, and I kind of see this idea of border crossing um, as this, as a mandate, that this is who we are, we're border crossers as a people. Uh, we, we, we know how to transcend, to move in between barriers and boundaries and the importance of that. Um, and, you know, I've personally, I think that some of the, um, the most concrete barriers that we set up today are, are the prison walls um, and that we put people in these um, behind walls where they're inaccessible, you know, even their family members have to fight to see them, um, you know, and they're kind of, they live in this kind of, this veil of secrecy, they're kind of shrouded in this, you know, nobody knows what goes on over there um, and, and their message is not, so it's not easy to get out. Um, and that we have this obligation to to transgress, to move into be in and out of those walls. And I think that if I, you know, keep doing that, it'll make it easier for people also when they re-enter. Um, you know, that that as many times as I can walk through that, then other people maybe can have an have an easier um, time walking through as well. But yeah, so I see that as my kind of as my justice work. Um, you know, as a piece of my Jewish identity is to to move beyond these borders and boundaries that we erect. Uh, we prevent people from seeing each other, from recognizing one another's humanity. So if I were to ask you, you know, um, how would you describe your theology or how do you describe the grounding in which you pursue your your vocation? How would how would you say that? I would say that we are on this eternal march toward a land of promise and that promise is constantly being redefined. Um, but we know that when you start in a narrow place, when you start in a place of slavery and that you move through the wilderness, um, that you do that with your community. You do that with as many people as possible and you're constantly bringing people along in that journey through the wilderness. And that this march, the promised land is, is eternal, um, that we never actually get there, but that we are people who strive. Um, so we just constantly have to keep building and rethinking that promise. Um, and that if, you know, if anybody still is in Egypt, it's our, it's our obligation to help them get out. Um, and that the promised land is a place where we all thrive. Oh, oh, okay. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up soon, but I have more questions. So, yeah. you know, I, we have all come, we're all, you know, crawling out of this pandemic and uh, in, in all the ways that we can. Um, a lot of us didn't make it, um, you know, and so we were going to have to at some point come up with, determine a morning strategy, I think. Um, but at the same time, you know, coming out of uh, something like a pandemic, we're also seeing this really visceral reaction to trans and queer children, essentially, um, at a national level. And in a time when 
in my personal life, I mean, obviously I live in New York city and that comes with a certain amount of privilege, but you know, we're also seeing queer people on television and in office and, you know, in the, in these ways that maybe you and I did not have growing up. And it feels very much like there's a tension between like this demise and this hope um, that we are trying to get to. And in a sermon that you delivered in September, um, you say the third way of choosing life is the path of hope, not simple-minded optimism, but rigorous disciplined hope, hope that builds new life out of anguish and despair. Um, and I would love if you talked a little bit more about that, um, both in the context of the world that we're in, in many ways, but also specifically to and for these trans kids and their families that have to live against these laws that are going into, into play. Yeah, I think that's from Deuteronomy. I think God says to, to the people as they're about to enter the, you know, their promised land that, that there are two choices before them, life and death, and choose life. Yeah, I think choosing life means to choose hope. It means to understand and to see the, the struggle um, and understand and to see the reality of the world around you um, and to have a clear analysis of the injustice. But despite that, to understand that we are constantly um, instructed to strive and to choose life means to, to understand that there can be something um, that's better than what there is. To, to use our tool of prophetic imagination and to help other people see it as well. I love prophetic imagination. That was one of my, the most important thing I learned in seminary was that probably. Um, okay, so we're, I, I, I wanna be mindful of time and wrap this up. Where, where would you lead people to within a sacred text for, you know, a queer person who just mm -hmm. is not really sure that they can find solace in a text. Where would you show them? Beautiful. And and why? I would, you know, I would start with with a, the clergy person. Um, you know, and what does it mean to be queer as clergy, and how do we embody that? There's this uh, the Levitical priest in the Book of Leviticus. We read about the role of the priest, and the priest is an intercessor, someone who offers sacrifices on behalf of the people to God. Um, it kind of stands in between the people and a sacred deity. Um, and the priest is also someone who um, goes in and out of the Levitical camp. Somebody, when someone is sick, they're afflicted, um, they have to leave the camp to heal. And the priest is the only person who comes in and out of that camp um, and ministers to people who are outside of the camp and helps walk them back into the camp when they're ready to come back. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a queer role. The priest is queer. Mm -hmm. We are able as clergy people, um, we stand kind of with people um, as they're speaking to God. I wouldn't say that we're in between God and people anymore, mm -hmm. um, but that the, the, the priest is someone who's constantly standing on the boundaries, who's constantly standing on the border and who walks that line back and forth um, as in their ministry. Um, so I think that this is, I think Leviticus, you know, with all of its, with all of its rules and regulations and so many kind of graphic details about sacrifice is also one of the kind of um, 
books that offers a queer anthem, especially for clergy people, uh, that the priest is the person who is ministering across borders and boundaries. And that we're constantly moving between people. We're moving between illness and health. We're moving between God and people. Um, and we're blurring those boundaries as we do it. So we're creating new ways for people to be as we move in our physical moves, um, in our movements. So I want people to go and embrace the Levitical priest and see that... <laughs> <laughs> there have been queer clergy since there was clergy. <laughs> I enjoy how your sort of mantra of walking in between these tensions is a thread that you hold very dear. Like even in the text that you just prescribed, it was it's a text that has a lot of tension in it between like, uh, you could use the word dogmatic rules, but yeah. and and also you know you're you're saying that like in this text that has dogma lies a queer priest and and you know it's a text that's like thousands of years old and it's also something that you thread throughout your sermons. So I appreciate that. Yeah, that's what I love. I mean, I think I think religion is, you know, and our sacred texts reflect this. You know, I think fundamentally our texts recognize how blurry um, and kind of um, in between we all are. And that our ritual moments are these moments to shepherd us through kind of chaotic times that just see how, you know, there's no, there's, these lines for all of us are constantly blurred. I mean, even when we move just like, you know, through um, adolescence and we have these moments marking these sacred transitions into adulthood, even, you know, in Jewish tradition, we have Shabbat, um, which is our, you know, our sacred day of the week. And we move to the rest of the week. We have this ritual called Havdalah that moves us through sacred time to kind of the rest of the week time. But I love Havdalah because there's this recognition that there is kind of like, there's a danger in the in-between, but there's also this creative possibility in this Havdalah ritual, um, you know, you're reawakening senses for the rest of the week. There's fire, there's cinnamon, there's all kinds of smells going on. Um, but look at that creative possibility that comes out of that fire that exists. You know, there's so much limitless potential in those movements. <laughs> this was so fun. I think um, we should end it there. And clearly we yeah. should, you know, grab lunch and talk about God more because this was so powerful. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. Special thanks go out to Ian Reese and Robin Reese, who are not related, and Megan Taylor for production and editing. Thank you for making this podcast happen at all. Thank you to Scott Sprunger and Katilao Mabindio for being my thought partners for this project and in life in general. Thank you so much to Sue Young Park for your guidance. The music was written and performed by Jen and Natalia Quadra. And as always, this work is for and dedicated to queer people everywhere, especially to those who cannot or never had the chance to come out safely as themselves. You have always been divinely made.